This is a Barakor radio conversation on those who live after a loved one has decided to end his or her life. Talking about suicide may be overly difficult for some, but we feel it's an important health issue in our country that needs to be looked at. It was recorded at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on West 72nd Street in Manhattan, mid-May 2023. I was always bothered by Robert Altman's take on suicide in his 1970 film, M.A.S.H., the well-endowed dentist who cannot go on because he has lost his sex drive has even on first viewing seemed to me juvenile, not really funny. Maybe because suicide is not painless for anyone. Recently, David Brooks of the New York Times wrote about the suicide of his close friend Pete and the feeling that followed. Brooks writes that experiencing the suicide of someone close, quote, is not just sorrow, it's a state of consciousness that distorts perception of time, space, and self. In 2015, there were over 44,000 suicides in America, the 10th most common cause of death and rising. One million attempted suicides a year, that's one every 35 seconds. In the world, someone kills himself or herself every 40 seconds. Suicide is not painless. It is a health issue that needs to be examined. I'm Alan Winson, and for this Barcore Radio podcast, we'll be talking with two people who study and write about suicide, and with the friends of Jen, who recently killed herself. And I am Rebecca McCain. Our friend and co-producer, Alina Larson, who has been helping with these BCR podcasts from the beginning, told us that she wanted to produce a program on suicide. A close friend of hers had killed herself, and she wanted to understand what she was feeling Alina invited others who knew Jen to be with us today. Also with us today are two people who study and write about suicide. Carla Fine has spoken extensively on suicide and is the author of the widely acclaimed book, No Time to Say Goodbye, about Ms. Fine's husband, a prominent New York physician who killed himself in 1989 when he was 43. Dr. Michael Myers is a leader in the field of suicide and a professor of psychiatry at SUNY Downstate Medical School in Brooklyn. In his 2017 book on physician suicide, entitled Why Physicians Die by Suicide, Lessons Learned from Their Families and Others Who Care, Dr. Myers shares his experiences of counseling doctors who are considering suicide. Suicide is a unique way of dying and it is unique for the person who is experiencing the death of a loved one. Um, we want to thank you all for joining us for this difficult conversation. Um, Carla Fine and Michael Myers, how did you get together to write this book, Touched by Suicide, Hope and Healing After Loss? I had written a book called No Time to Say Goodbye, Surviving the Suicide of a Loved One. Uh, my husband who had killed himself was a physician. And Mike is um, 
Dr. Michael Myers, is um, expert on physician health. And he um, concentrates on doctor's health and also including suicide. And so we were colleagues and we had met in different conferences and meetings. And we, then we decided to take our two different expertise, if you want to call it that, uh, from uh, my point of view of what it's like to be um, someone who's lost a loved one to suicide and who has met many people who have lost loved ones to suicide and Mike's mental health background and expertise so we could combine our two, our two areas of, um, to help others. Uh, Mike, you, you, um, had you known of Carla's book, uh, Touched by Suicide? Is it Because it's kind of known. Yes. Well, at the time, it, it, I hadn't known. I was here in New York, actually, uh, at a conference, and I was just heading to LaGuardia, and there was a piece in the Times uh, about Carla and his book. And I thought, oh, my gosh. First of all, I was surprised. I, even though I hadn't met Carla, I was familiar with her previous, one of her previous books on doctors' marriages because I had written a book on, on medical marriages as well. And so I grabbed the book from uh, Borders or something, read it all from cover to cover, all the way back to Vancouver, which is a long trip, and um, got in touch with her because she's listed in the white pages. <laughs> and, I, and I called her up. It was a cold call, and I said, "I have to meet you." Wait a minute, white pages. What is that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so, and so we did. And then it was that was the beginning of a phenomenal collaboration. Wow. Because wow. as Carla said, we did a lot of a lot of teaching together and uh, lecturing at various medical schools and medical societies, you know, with our combined perspective. And you continue to work together. Oh yes, yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, let's get into it, all right? Facing the death of a loved one who killed herself or himself is unlike other sorts of deaths that we have to face as we proceed through our lives. Um, what is it about suicide, suicide in particular, that's different for the family and friends that live on? That's a big question. That's a big question, but that's the main question. Yeah. So thank you for starting with the main question. The main question is, the answer is, we don't know the answer. When someone dies by suicide, they have, in a way, chosen to leave us and leave many, many unanswered questions behind and many, many emotions behind. So where most people hang on to life, whatever, cancer treatments or whatever, we, we hold on by our fingernails. When we lose a loved one to suicide and they're healthy or they're young or they're, we just don't understand why, it feels like an abandonment. There's a lot of guilt on our part, like what could we have done, what we could have, we should have, what if. And it's very torturous because they leave, we, we leave, we are left with so many unanswered questions that will never be answered, actually, and that we then have to, to live with. I always say that um, suicide is very humbling because we learn quickly that you can love somebody, but you can't keep them alive. And, and maybe we'll, ne we'll have to always live with uncertainty of why that person has decided to, to end their lives. Right. Michael, I wonder if, if do, you have, do you have a different answer to that question? Or? Um, my answer builds on Carlos. Um, the intention is a very big piece, even though, as you know, I'm a mental health professional, a psychiatrist, 
And so that somewhere between 85 to 90% of people who take their lives, it's felt that they're living with some type of mental illness at that time. And so this is why the word intention kind of has a, has a kind of a checkered meaning, but yet indeed they are the ones that do execute that act. And it's largely felt through, um, and family members feel this as well, and people who survive suicide attempts will say, I didn't really want to die. I, I, I had to get rid of the pain, and this is what I did. And sometimes what they did is catastrophic. But that's, that's a measure of how horrid the pain is. So that's the one thing. The second thing is that it's this is shrouded in stigma. And so that complicates the death. Um, people who are survivors of suicide loss, and Carla can speak to this so eloquently, it's very, very different in terms of, of uh, people who approach or don't approach you as a, as a grieving uh, person. Right. Um, so. um, certainly there's two sides of this. There is the suicide side, the person who's killing herself, yes. himself, yeah. and then there's the side of the people have to live on. Right. And, I, I, and, um, and there's a stigma on both sides right. of, of that. And we will sure. talk more about the sure. stigma. Okay. I wonder, um, talking about the people who are living on, um, that there is a need to know why um, a loved one killed herself or himself. I mean, what, what is that need to know, the why, the answer? I always say that, um, and I've met thousands and thousands of people who've lost loved ones to suicide. And I say we become poets and philosophers immediately. Why do you live? Why do you die? I mean, we go from talking about, you know, what's your favorite kind of pizza to like, why does somebody decide to live and why does somebody decide to die? And the why, because the person that has left us left with all the answers. So we can, we turn it this way and we turn it that way and we turn it this way, but we'll never know because that person is not there to ask. And I always say that um, Harry, who is my husband, who is a physician here in New York City, if I could ask him, maybe he would say, I don't know. And so we, who knows what, why that is. So that why is, a, is probably the most burning part of being a survivor of suicide. Some, sometimes the suicide leaves a note. Does well, that help? Well, it's interesting. People, it's only 25% of people leave notes. And most of the notes are saying, you know, I'm sorry, or I fucked up, or something like that. In the movies, they leave a note, and they say, I did it because, you know, I stole $100 million. If they don't, people don't leave notes. And mo if they do leave a note, it's mostly I'm sorry or something like that. It doesn't, it doesn't give you an answer. I would, I would think, too, that it, it's, it may not be enough. Even and, and, and sometimes it's even worse. They say, well, I've always hated you. You know, that's for sure. You, you see, you know, ch children saying that. I mean, sometimes the notes are more harmful than whatever. They certainly don't give an answer. What we have to do is come to our own answer that we can live with or that we can't live with an answer, that there is no answer to live with, that we just live with the uncertainty and try to um, honor our loved ones, how they lived. Basically, the only way to, to continue living with it is just to remember how they lived and not how they died, because we'll never know. We, we don't know the answer to that. Maybe this is... Um, um directed more towards Michael, but both of you can do it. The, the method 
that people commit suicide is different. And clearly that's a choice, or is it not a choice? Is it, uh, is, does the method tell us anything about why? There's a lot that's made of that sometimes. And uh, let me put it this way. When someone dies by suicide, it's considered a violent death, even if they take pills. Because, see, some people have said, who are survivors, have said, you know, you're lucky your daughter took pills. You know, my son blew his head off. And that mother, that first mother doesn't feel comforted by that. Said, you know, I still, I still lost, you know, I still lost my son. I may not have PTSD or something like you do or something like that. But there's a lot made about that. But sometimes um, the, the suicide deaths that come um, toward the end of of a lot of agitation where the person may not even have been been plotting and thinking of a particular method those are ones where the individual will find the easiest means possible like here running in front of a car or if they can think if I can get to a roof then I'll jump but they're not thinking but I actually do have a firearm at home I never thought of that that sort of thing so it again it's to kind of relieve that pain and also too there's even there's even some stigma associated with method these days. Not, not all families are disclosing because it's such a personal fact. And in my postvention research that I've been doing with families who have lost a physician, loved one to suicide, I don't ask if they, if they volunteer you know, how the physician took their life, then that's fine. But I've just learned that, well, sometimes they'll say, and please do not, Please do not ask me how my son took his life. I, I, I will not talk about that. And, and what, what's interesting on the other side of this, yeah. well, we, we can't um, ignore guns. That's the, um, that's right. the largest um, source of uh, suicide death or, or, or it's firearms. It's over 50%. Yes. And I hear it's, it's uh, a lot of young people die by guns. A lot of everybody dies by, by guns, yeah. and if 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 you live in a, a city and, and maybe you can jump off a building, you know something like that is different than if. But with with so many firearms in the house, especially when you say young people, that's maybe more impulsive. So if you just say I can't take this anymore, and you have the loaded gun in your house, it's easier to to um, to, to kill yourself in yeah. that kind of way. Yeah. I, it was one of the questions I, I had crossed out I wasn't going to ask because there's a whole other conversation about guns in, in this country. Um, well, but certainly thank you for bringing it's it up. A, it's a very big problem and, and, um, and it's the leading cause of, of gun death is suicide um, more, than, more than homicide. And I just want to say something that's kind of interesting, a little different from Mike, is that Suicide survivors, we do ask each other how they did it. Physicians may not, Mike, is more subtle about it. But when we meet another survivor of suicide, that's our first question. How'd they do it? How'd they do it? But we're in kind of support groups, and we're in the same boat, and there's no stigma um, with us outside. We may not go around and tell people what he did. But that's usually the first or second question. We say, I'm sorry, how did they die? And then the, it, it's a kind of a bonding thing. Yes. Um, but where, but there, it, and we brought this up. I mean, the stigma surrounded by suicide yeah. is just tremendous and has not gone away in any shape or form. Yeah, and this is where I would agree completely with Carla because, see, that's an intimate 
group. That's an intimate setting where you mm-hmm. can trust everybody. That's right. You Whereas feel safe, yeah. They don't know about you know a physician, a therapist, or outsider mm-hmm. or whatever who's asking those questions. And I mean, the medical examiner, of course, will get that kind of information. Right. But I just think for all of us who are, I think I think we do have to be sensitive to mm-hmm. that when we're especially right. reaching out to someone. Right, and I think we are talking about the person who's the so victim of the suicide, the person that lives on. I don't use the word victim Mm -hmm. um, uh, because the person did it to the the victim is the dead person, actually, because they're the ones that self-murdered. And so as a survivor of suicide laws, we know who the perpetrator is. We know who the victim is. We know the means. We just don't know the motivation. And so that's the part that's confusing, that the very person that we loved is the person who killed the person we loved. So we're not the victims at all. They're the victims because, unfortunately, they're not alive anymore and they're missing life. What do you say to that person who blames themselves, who feels like they could have made, you know, a call at the right time or said just the right words? Everybody blames themselves. Even if you're going to get a call from somebody you went to college with 30 years ago, you're going to blame yourself. You know, I never kept in contact with that person, and I remember they sent me a Christmas card 10 years ago, and I never answered it. Everyone blames themselves, and I think there's this kind of feeling that somehow we could have saved them, we could have done something. Everyone blames it because you go, you know, you, you, you roll the film backwards, and you think, what could I have done? And I, when I speak in front of groups, I speak in front of a lot of groups, I always say there were many, many times that you kept your loved one alive. You just don't know that. You just know, you just know the end of the story when they completed it. But you don't know when you said the right things. You don't know when you did the right things, that they were just about to do something. You just know at the end. So you have to know that over the many years you've been with them, you did do things to keep them alive. You just don't know when that might have been. Uh, can I just add one yeah, yeah, thing please, about, please about people who are blaming themselves? What you don't do is, is um, shut them down. It's part of healing. Absolutely. And it's best to just listen, to let them go through that. Even if it's painful for you to see how much they're blaming themselves, they will, they will go, th- go through that gradually. It takes time. That's real. That's a real thing they're going through. It's a process of of discovery, self-discovery, learning more, that that type of thing. And sometimes they do it alone. Sometimes they do it with a therapist or with family members, with a close friend. But it is all part of healing. And and they will come out the other end by asking those. See, see the people who shut down and won't talk about it at all are the ones that we really, really worry about. Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'd like to turn now to the person who committed suicide. And just take a quick look at, 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 at that. Is the, isn't the act of killing yourself a way of dealing with immeasurable pain? That's, that's the first question. That person is not thinking of anyone else, just thinking of herself, himself. Isn't suicide a totally selfish act? That in that state, the person's not care, doesn't care with what happens afterwards and the mess that she's making. Yeah, so the question that you've asked is a, is a, is a common one, actually, that, that sometimes people who are trying to make sense of this feel. And also, I mean, family members, strangers, they just they, they think this is such a selfish thing to do. What it's about is that when individuals, I think you said, Alan, that they're not thinking about anyone else, and it's true, because their mind is in a frenzy. 
um, they are so preoccupied with, with their symptoms, the agitation they feel or the self-criticism, the, the horrible sense of self-worth that they're feeling. Some of them may even be hearing voices that are actually telling them to harm themselves. Um, and, it, and, and the despair that they feel. So that we have these so-called, what are called protective factors that we think if somebody's religious or if they're in a happy marriage or if they've got children or if they have a lot of money, um, that those, those will kind of prevent you or, from suicide. But of course, it can happen to anyone in those categories when you get feeling just so ill and they're in. So when you talk to individuals who do survive these suicide attempts and you ask them, they say, I stopped thinking about what this might do to my kids or my spouse about a day and a half before I, I did it because then my thinking was, I'm such a burden to them that they, and they will really be better off without me. My wife will have a second chance you know, in another marriage or something like that. My kids, you know, will also, you know, you know, you know be able to kind of move on, that, that their dad was just a complete fuck-up, you know, just a loser. And so I really felt that I needed to, to exit. So but, but I'm going to um, just be the word police for a while. So we try not to say commit suicide. We try to say die by suicide. And we've been trying to say that, trying to um, change that terminology for a couple of years because commit sounds like a crime. And they didn't commit suicide, they died by suicide. So sorry to correct you. But um, we, have a, we all have a lot to learn. <laughs> that's, right, that's right, that's right. And that's part of why we're doing this. Yeah, and thank yeah. you so much for yeah. doing this because yeah. it's a very difficult subject and not everybody wants to do that. So I'd like to answer about the selfish. I was furious at my husband. I mean, he, he left me with debts. He, we were married young. We were the prime of our lives. And a lot of people are angry. Anger is a, is a very difficult emotion when, when someone dies by suicide because you think, okay, the person's dead and it's hard to be per- mad at a person who's dead. And so there are many people out there, and I hope who are listening, that it's okay to have that as a, a, as a reaction, along with everything else that you're going to have. And, and many times it does feel selfish. Mike is, is, the, is our, our North Star because he's the psychiatrist. But among us, we're like, how could they have left my daughter? My daughter is six years old and going to grow up without a mother. And, and then she has to face that this is now part of her history. And so there is a feeling that they're selfish. And then, you know, as we get more into it, then we can be more forgiving. But there, there is a feeling like, why didn't they think of us? Why didn't they think of us? Yeah, yeah because your, your, your thoughts are, they're this human normal thoughts. Um, I remember once Carl and I were at a conference where the sister of a woman who was pregnant killed herself. And people said, couldn't she have waited till she had the baby? Yeah. But it's not like that. Right. You know. Yeah. I understand the anger part. My mother threatened to kill herself to me when I was a child. I mean, she told me this when I was a child. And ever since that, my, my, it's just been about anger. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. It, because it's, it's kind of emotional ba- blackmail. I mean, that's, it's, yeah. it's, 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 well, if you do this, you know, I'm, I'm just going to take my life. And then... Then when they do, they say, "Hey, they really, they really meant it," you know. So. Well, her, her mother didn't really mean it. So. No, thankfully, yes. 
So throughout the book, Touched by Suicide, Hope and Healing After Loss, the recommendation is to seek professional help. How effective is talk therapy, do you think, or medication for a person who's grieving this sort of a loss? So I'll talk about, I'll talk about the talk part and then Mike, of course. Yeah. So I, I went to a therapist three times a week um, at the beginning. I found it very helpful. Um, I also joined a support group, which is I recommend to anyone who might be listening. They're, they're online now. They're in person where you meet other people who have also lost a loved one to suicide. And it's really, really important to talk about it. It's really, really important to have professional help with this. And um, I'll leave the, the, the other part to my... <laughs> Yeah, who is the professional? <laughs> is no, the no, no. Professional. I, I agree with everything Carla said. We we always feel so badly w- with people who feel, you know, should I go to therapy or should I like just why not? You know that sort of thing. But it isn't easy for all people to go to therapy. For some people, there's a stigma to that, that sort of thing. So that's really even the first take that most psychiatrists have. So where we come in though, is when and if we feel that the bereavement that the individual is feeling has has really, really intensified. And by the way, the, the bereavement associated with suicide, not only is it unique, but it is normal to be very, very intense. Uh, even the word fierce is used a lot. I'm grieving fiercely, that sort of thing. And so if you look at that with a person and they say, but you know, despite all of that, I think I'm a little bit better than I was a month ago. So when we hear things like that, that's a really good sign. And, uh, and so, but when and if, though, the person seems to be really stuck and they're going over and over things again and maybe they've, they've also stopped eating or they're losing weight, they're not sleeping well and loved ones are really worried about them, that's where we come in. And, and often for a short period of time it can be helpful for them to be on, on something like an antidepressant for a brief period of time. Even if they've never been on one before, it will, it will help both the anxiety and sort of lift their mood a bit. And I always try to explain to grieving patients like that because they worry that, but I'm afraid though that I won't, I won't be able to grieve though. And I said, no, that won't happen. If anything, you'll progress in your grief journey better over the next several years, that sort of thing. Because it takes a long time. And you feel like you somehow, you should grieve. Like that's something that you're, yes. that yeah. honors the person that passed. Absolutely. And if there's one takeaway right. that I took from yeah. your book that you yeah. two wrote, is that the bereavement of uh, someone you love who had death by suicide um, is a different kind of bereavement. I mean, you just said oh, that, yeah. but I just yeah. wanted to oh, yeah. emphasize I mean, it's not normal. No. Um, I have a question in that regard, too. Um, when my brother passed, it was devastating for me, and I got to see him before he passed. And so, But I remember just, you know, going through horrible grief, and someone said, well, it'll last about a year, you know, and you'll feel a little better. It did. It actually did. And, I, and, I, and, and in a way, that kind of comforted me, you know. Um, but I can't imagine... I mean, how long well, does um, it take to get over some, losing someone by suicide? Right. Um, when, when I wrote my first book about suicide, No Time to Say Goodbye, Surviving the Suicide of a Loved One, there were no books out. Um, so when Harry killed himself um, in 1989 and I went to all the bookstores, there were all these books about, like, how to kill yourself, like uh, Final Exit and the creative beauty of suicide and 
um, and mourning death, but there wasn't anything about um, how to mourn a death by suicide. So part of me said, well, I guess I'm going to have to write it. You know, I had written other books, and I said I have to write it. So I had interviewed like 60 people and used their stories, including mine, to talk about the different feelings um, that surround mourning a death by suicide. And I'm glad you asked the question about time. And um, if I meet somebody who lost a loved one to suicide three years out, I say, I'm sorry for your recent death. Because I think, and I've, I've lost loved ones to regular deaths. <laughs> and, and, um, but I don't think there's any time um, when people say this is going to happen, that's going to happen, that's going to happen because until you kind of figure it out and I like the way you said that about uh, you know, grief is kind of honoring them because as you're keeping them alive you know, maybe not to, to but to continue on with your life not to stop living but to, to keep them, I don't think there's anything wrong with that and that's why people like suicide support groups because they don't have to hear people say aren't you over it already or they wouldn't say that but they would just say wow it's been a year and you're still talking about it and um, I have friends that I know for 25 years who I met in support groups and we can go from talking about you know politics to talking about suicide in one second and we, we just feel comfortable doing it because that's our experience. Okay, can I just jump in with, I have, a, I have another thing about language <laughs> that Carla had, the one about commit. Um, uh, the, the, the term over, get over it, like how long does that take? That isn't language that, that suicide bereavement people, they, they, they talk about uh, going through it or prevailing or lessening or something like that. So that, so that there isn't sort of a finite point. They will use terms that it's so much easier than it was five years ago. You know. But you never get over it. No. You are listening to Bar Crawl Radio Podcast being recorded at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar. And we're talking to two experts on suicide and with the friends of Jen who killed herself. So um, one of um, Alina's friends just arrived. Can you introduce yourself to us? Uh, my name is Mary Kay Reese. I'm a librarian from New Jersey. Um, I know Alina through my sister-in-law, who died in September. Okay, by suicide. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So here's my questions, and either one of you can ask, answer, or bo- both. Um, so can we ask about? Your friend, Jen, who killed herself, who was she? What sort of a friend was she, and how did you know her in your life? She was your sister-in-law. She was my sister-in-law, yes. I've, I met Jennifer when she was 14 years old. I was 21. And she was the baby sister of the boy I was in love with. Um, I'm from the Midwest, and I had met him at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and came out to the East Coast and was very excited to be out of the Midwest and met Seth's family, including his cute baby sister. We were married for 30 years, and she was my sister. I, didn't, I, had, I had three brothers but no sisters, and Jennifer really became my sister. 
and she was quirky and funny and brilliant and built this amazing business uh, on her own. She didn't really seem like the type to have been able to do that somehow because she was just this little girl. Maybe just in my mind she was this little girl. But she built this incredible uh, business in advertising. She was very well respected. She was, she had uh, beautiful clothes. Fashion was kind of her thing. And she went to con every year. And she hit personal hardship that was, it, it, it still even in retrospect seems hard for me to get my head around. But she really, it just sunk her over the course of a decade. Um, and she couldn't. She just couldn't live with what had happened. She lost a lot. She, she lost everything. Out of respect for Jen and her family and friends, we have edited out details of this loss and tried to focus rather on, on how those close to her faced Jen's decision. Um, her sense of who she was, I think. She lost everything. I knew toward the end that that it was coming. Um, and, you know, we talked about another hospitalization, and I had gotten to the point, this is a little scary to say, but I had gotten to the point where I thought, I, I, I don't see any point anymore in yet another psychiatric hospitalization and more medication. I think she was heavily medicated too much, and she just lost touch with, why she was here. Alina, how did you know her? So our sons started first grade together. Um, so, right, we've been, we'd been friends for 10 years. Um, so, yeah, I really, you know, just had a few years um, with her when um, life, you know, was going well before things started to not be. Yeah, I mean, that really was a heartbreaking part of it too was to hear her stories um, after her first two attempts of just how unhelpful um, her hospital stays were and the aftercare so that really gave me a glimpse into um, how broken the system is so you really um, to some degree had a sense that she might one day take her life by suicide. Yeah, I did. So what sorts of questions do you ask yourself now about that? I mean, you know, just as you were talking about, you know, you can't help but of course think, what if I had called two hours earlier? What if I had been there? I mean, those questions were definitely there, yeah. Do you talk to each other about we met at the funeral. <laughs> we did. And we've tried to get together, but I think... Yeah. I, I think I'm just beginning to realize how this loss and what preceded it for those years sort of the, the devastating effect on me. My energy is very low. This year I'm a middle school teacher and it requires a lot of energy. <laughs> to say the least and I've been struggling since then my adult children are really struggling with it um that was their aunt 
it was their aunt and they saw her she was their silly fun aunt and then she was I, I don't even know how to describe it just so devastated and and look my sister-in-law had some vulnerabilities as you know most of us do with our mental health but she was really fine um until it just it sounds a little paranoid but but i'm gonna say it because it it feels to everyone in the family like she just got pushed up against a wall and just the the pressure was unrelenting and I don't know who could have endured that. And I think toward the end, I think she was, as Alina said, the the system kept her safe in the worst moments by just keeping her confined, but didn't provide anything else. Her, she had a great therapist, but there was little to no coordination. My sister-in-law also had stage four breast cancer. And so there was shockingly little coordination between her cancer team and the the psychiatric team, these emergencies that would happen. Um, I know her therapist tried, her lawyer, her family. I just, there seemed to be, I, I, I think there's a lot of guilt, obviously, after this happens. Do you think you would feel less devastated if she had died by breast cancer by her stage four breast cancer that's a tough question i mean we were all it all happened at the same time yeah i know i think that of course if it had been sort of a natural cause of death rather than at her own hand i think yes but it's an awful thing to say about the last long bit of time I spent with her was last August and I could see it coming and I was on the phone with her and her therapist because of the the way she was talking I was at her parents house with her I was supposed to go to Cape Cod but I drove her home to Manhattan instead and stayed with her until somebody came to be with her and in the meantime sat in on a therapy session and when her therapist said Jen do you think you need to be in the hospital to be safe? My first thought was, oh, God, no. It's not going to keep her safe. It's not, that's not safety, to be confined and heavily medicated. And I knew that it was just a matter of we could hospitalize her over and over, but it felt to me like there was no solution to this injustice that had happened. So this isn't just a person who was mentally ill. It wasn't a person who had, you know, severe substance use issues or psychosis or, you know, really unmanageable bipolar disorder or anything. It was a person who was somewhat vulnerable, as many people I know are, who really had this tragedy happen. How do you deal with this loss? There was a lot of loss around this family for me because I was married to her brother. <laughs> so I had the, the loss of the divorce of the father of my children. And then Jennifer, I don't even know. I'm not sure I know how I'm dealing with it except to be in this state of fatigue. I'm just trying, I think about her all the time. I spend a lot of time with her parents 
because they're in their 90s. And I think I do that well, for them because I love them, but I also do it for Jennifer. Are you getting any help yourself? I've been in therapy forever, yeah. <laughs> and, and I don't know if you were here when Carla mentioned support groups. You know, I, I might, so I'm a teacher, and mm-hmm. my, my teaching year is ending. Yes, at, over the summer. At the end of start. June, yeah. and I think maybe that's not a terrible idea for yeah. me. Yeah. It's just that this happened my first week of school in September, yeah. or my help. second week, so it's just been trying to, I'm also old, so I, I get up at five in the morning and go teach all day, and then I, I have almost no energy <laughs> for anything else. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's probably something I really should look into just to be able to be with people who've had the same kind of loss. When you were asking about how do you deal with it, I it was, it's being with her on the Upper West Side. I just you know every day I pass by things that we did together, and so it's 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 always a reminder. You know, are you talking to anyone or? You know, yes, that's another thing I keep meaning to do, and I guess I keep thinking, oh, because of the pandemic, there's no. Uh, nobody's, everybody's booked up, but that's not an excuse. Um, Michael Myers, Dr. Michael Myers, you are a psychiatrist who treats and counsels physicians. And uh, these are physicians who are considering suicide. Um, why did you choose the me- this particular aspect of the medical profession? It started uh, long before I was conscious of it when I lost my roommate to suicide in medical school. He was another medical student. Um, but I just pushed it away like everybody did in those days. This was in 1962. And, um, <clears throat> and so it didn't really um, sort of raise itself much more until after I graduated from medical school and I began to see a lot of individuals in our emergency rooms and intensive care units who had made suicide attempts and were very, very ill. And a number of them died you know, under my watch as an internist or emergency doc. And that's the number, when I went into psychiatry. And then I realized pretty quickly that physicians are quite a vulnerable group of people. And so um, after finishing my training, and I did half-time private practice and half-time academic work for 35 years, um, it was during that time that I really kind of focused in on looking after <coughs> medical students and physicians and their family members. So that's yeah. how it all got started. Right. I think we should mention uh, your book, 2017 book, why physicians die by suicide lessons learned from their families and others who care. Um, um, a, ter- uh, a terrific look at at this problem, which I didn't even know existed. Right. And, no, and most people, people know don't. About it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so what is it about the doctors that um, makes them particularly vulnerable? To yeah, it's it's kind of multifactorial. About you know, there are just so many different things. Uh, one is having to do with sort of the stress of the work, but lots of people have stressful lives. But where it gets tricky, though, is where physicians, though, uh, don't pay attention to their own health. It's gotten better. Uh, But even those who do pay attention to their health feel that it's kind of selfish to go and get care for yourself. Your job is to look after others. Those are the ones who are particularly altruistic or who just give and give and give and just really get worn down. That's why you hear so much about burnout and moral injury in physicians today. But now we've come some ways in having not only services available, but just a heightened consciousness that they have to look after themselves or they're not going to be any good to anybody else, you know, in terms of the care that they give. 
But there's other vulnerabilities there sometimes that have to do with not being able to recognize depression in yourself or substance use disorders or PTSD, some of the things that come from looking after um, you know, a lot of you know, patients who um, have injured themselves or seeing horrible things and looking after you know, people with you know, serious things like that. I, so, I wonder if we can just back yeah, up just, yeah. just a little bit because I don't know that people realize the extent of this issue of physicians who are killing themselves. What, what, what are the stats on it? Well, the only thing, actually, the, the, the research is not good, but, but yet it, it's continued to be studied. And um, the more recent um, research is that, for instance, we thought maybe at the beginning of the pandemic, um, maybe suicide rates would go down in general. And we think they did, actually, for a couple of years, but they've come up again as the pandemic has gone on. But that applies to physicians as well. But until then, we were talking about roughly three to 400 physicians in the U.S. die by suicide each year. So that's roughly a doctor a day. Doctor a day. Yeah. Right. So I, I don't think people realize that that's the, no. that's the case. Um, in, in your book, um, you describe a side of being a physician that I had never really considered before. But now that you've pointed out, it's, yeah, it's true that doctors are overachievers, that they're perfectionists that their patient workload, as you've just said, is quite large. They're responsible for lives, mm -hmm. and they feel it deeply. Right. Doctors feel it. And though their work can lead to success and accolades, there is a dark side that's produced also. Could you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah, it, and you've, Ellen, you've articulated it very well right there. I got it right from your book, so. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but really, that, that is true. It's the flip side of perfectionism, actually, where we're um, sort of not able to um, um, forgive ourselves or to show self-compassion. And, um, and so they can take the uh, mishaps, which happen. I mean, we're human. But errors that occur, and if they're particularly tragic, you know, losing a patient in the operating room, for instance, or in my branch of medicine, physicians who lose patients to suicide, when they're young and not used to that, that can be devastating for them. And, um, and so there's now a sort of movement called self-compassion, which is actually, you know, just going on in our society, but it's basically trying to treat yourself with the same sort of respect or love or care that you give to others. And so when people can do that, that's felt to help a bit. But, the, but Ellen, the second thing that gets in there, though, is stigma. The stigma in the house of medicine is worse than in the general public. Physicians feel, I mean, Harry was like that, Carla's late husband. Um, they, 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 again, we're trying to get other messages out, but they, they, they just see it as a sign of weakness that they just can't cope with every, everything. And everybody else seems to be coping when actually they're not a lot of the times. And so we're, we're trying to convert that into seeking help is the smart thing to do. It's the responsible thing to do as well. I think it's an interesting, um, I'd never heard it before, but uh, that MD for many people stands for a massive denial right. uh, yes. for, yeah. for doctors, that yeah. physicians are as see patients as being flawed Right. And so they cannot be seen as flawed. I just yeah. had a heart operation about a year ago, mm -hmm. open yeah. chest, whole yeah. thing. And Dr. Hamamzi, who saved my life, seemed so placid and so, <laughs> he was a mensch. It's like yeah. he was total power, but that job must create enormous amounts of tension, but he never so, showed it. Right. 
And, he and made, that must take yeah. a toll. <laughs> well, it, it, well it, it, you know, I think, I think all brands, when people are well-trained and they, they do what they do and they like it, but yet they balance that, though, with other things, perhaps teaching or research. And then, outside of medicine, you know, hopefully he's got a lot of things going on in his personal life. Oh, he is. Life. I think yeah, he yeah, does. I, yeah. think he does. Yeah. I think he does. Yeah. We're, hopefully I have, we're going to interview I want to ask you, do you take care of yourself? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I have. I, see, I have felt that since I started, began to study psychiatry in the 70s, that I realized that we don't have a lot of tools in psychiatry. I mean, we can prescribe some medications, and we can give electroconvulsive therapy. But those, that's about it. We, we have ourselves. So we do have to take care of ourselves. So I've done that with personal therapy. I've done that with um, exercise. Try to pay attention to my nutrition. Uh, uh, Responsible use of alcohol. So I'd like to answer that question you were talking about your doctor. So I'm on the other side. I meet the spouses of the doctors who have killed themselves. And um, you were talking about your sister-in-law, and it was very obvious what she was going through. So you were all kind of tuned in, and it didn't come as this terrible shock, like, oh, my God, what happened? So, I mean, for many of us, myself included, it just comes out of the blues, like, what just happened here? So, I mean, in all our professions, we have to act in a certain kind of way, I mean, as a teachers or all this kind of way and then we go home and we have our own lives and you asked that question at the beginning that's so devastating about suicide is that you think you know someone I was married for 21 years I thought I knew my, I mean I just it, I, so not only does it does it scare you that your judgment is wrong like here I am oh I'm in this happy marriage you know like Betty Boop blah 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 meanwhile my husband is you know getting medication to kill himself so what, where was my judgment on this? What, what, what did I miss on this? How did I not see what was going on? And how did I not know somebody who I thought I knew? So it, it, it turns everything upside down, too. And you write in, in that facing the suicide death of a loved one is humbling. In what ways? It's humbling because you can't um, stop them. You might have stopped them before, but you... you I mean, I think it's humbling to lose anyone, to cancer, to anything. You know, you just, you love them and you want them to live. But, but with suicide, because it's usually the person is healthy, if you want to say physically healthy, or they're very good at um, hiding it. Um, and it just feels that somehow you realize that you are not, no matter how, if it's your daughter, your mother, your husband, your best friend, your sister-in-law, people are their own people, and they're going to do what they want. So at the end of the day, you know, I mean, love is great and all of that, but that person is not you, and you can't, you know, change what is going to happen, although you might have changed it along the way. If they die by suicide, they, there's nothing you, it's no going back. I always kind of use this analogy. It's like if you have a fight, let's say, with your husband and you yell and you scream and then someone shuts the door and then you knock on the door and then eventually the door opens. Well, the door never opens because the person kind of like won the argument, so to speak. They got the last word, which is no word. And you can't say, wait a minute, wait a minute, just one, one second, because they're dead. I, I assume you continue to have that argument in your head. Um, 
You know, many years have gone by. I've remarried um, uh, to a wonderful person who's sitting right here. And um, Harry was 43. He was a brilliant doctor. He had a, he saved many lives. He was a board certified urologist here in New York City. I my my anger has turned to, I guess, sadness and like more like, boy, did, what did you miss? And I, I think I feel that a lot about most people who die by suicide. You don't know what's at the other end of the, you know, like what did you miss? Look at all the technology you missed. Look at look at everything you missed. And I feel more like sadness for for him and that he was stupid. There are health, there are programs that look at suicide as, as a health problem. Can you talk about the work that is being done uh, not only to prevent suicide, but to raise awareness about how suicide is stigmatized? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Well, it's a it's a that's a very good question, and also, I mean, this is a public health imperative. I mean, it started with Dr. David Satcher, our Surgeon General, and then it's been continued by Dr. Murthy, our current Surgeon General, who's really focusing on the mental health of the U.S. public, especially as we're coming out of the pandemic. But he was writing about this even before the pandemic. He was reading, writing about loneliness in our world and things like that. He pays very close attention to that. And the other thing that's very menschy, to use your word, Alan, about <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Murthy, our, our Indo-American um, Surgeon General is that he really has soul. He really he speaks openly sometimes about his own struggles or his family struggles or things like that, and that's phenomenal role modeling in our society, both as a man and in power. Um, so that's the that's the type of thing. And there's also I mean this is just a bit of an aside. I've met a woman who was the acting Surgeon General of California last year, Dr. Devika Bashan. And how I met her was I read a piece in the LA Times, I'm your acting Surgeon General and I live with bipolar illness. She's a pediatrician and public health specialist. And she is phenomenal about kind of, I think, leveling the playing field she has met so many people who had no idea that doctors could have a major psychiatric illness and be so high functioning, that type of thing. So there's a lot of education going on. But the other thing, too, that we have to really look at is you talked about the healthcare system being broken, the mental health, and it's so true. Um, there's never enough funding, there's never enough personnel, resources. People are waiting to get basic mental health care. Insurance is discriminatory on, in some respects. Some plans, the co-payments are so high. Um, most psychiatrists, at least here in the East Coast, don't accept insurance because the, it's paltry what the insurance company will will pay. Then you know the other, th the, you know, we're dealing with what are called the social determinants of health: poverty, unemployment, racism, and yet we just keep fighting and and you know trying to be positive because there's one thing I just wanted to add when you're talking about Jennifer the other thing too that is 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 out there now is it's called suicide specific therapy so it it isn't sort of like treating the underlying illnesses and I was thinking when you were when she said you know are you feeling that you need to go back in the hospital or something like that and you were thinking oh my gosh 
you know, like the safety net. They're trying to treat more and more suicidal, actively suicidal people outside of the hospital, in your office, or sometimes in their home. With a lot, it's it's a lot of it is cognitive behavior therapy, and it's trying to do what you can to kind of just do something with that kind of thinking, on the short term and the long term as well. You, there's still a need for basic medication and things like that, but but you are right. Sometimes people do. They're on many different medications. And then the individual themselves gets sort of depressed about that. And it's, it's really, I mean, it's, it's another thing that we are looking at and facing uh, in the American Psychiatric Association. It was one of the things that disturbed me most in the last year or so with Jenny. She was on so many different medications and they kept changing them. And I really felt just intuitively that part of her suffering had to do with this medication regime that was, she was on multiple medications, antipsychotics, she was on undergoing chemotherapy for the cancer. She wasn't present anymore. You know, at the beginning of the trauma, Jenny was there and you could engage with her about the problems. At the end, she was, no, she was absent. I spent the last day with her planning a bunch because she only got to see her boys occasionally and not at her home. So it all had to be out in Manhattan, which is stressful. And she no longer had any money. So I sat down with her and we made a shared note on iPhone about all the different things that we could do together with the boys in the city that was either little or no cost. And I, I sat on her couch with her and it was entirely my project. She just was like, oh, okay, does it sound good, Jenny? Okay. You and, know. and see, I guess you were thinking too, even if we do do this, the kids might pick this up, that their mom is there, but she's not there. Oh, they knew. Yeah. It was very clear. Just heartbreaking. It's a heartbreaking story. What should we take away from this conversation on suicide? Well, first I want to thank you for even having this conversation because suicide is a stigma, remains a stigma. Um, there isn't one country, one culture, one religion, one group where suicide is not a stigma. It is the only thing that's probably just universal. And it's a stigma to die by suicide. It's a stigma for the family. And for me, what I would like anyone who's listening to, to realize that not to keep it a secret because the more we talk about it, the less that there will be a stigma uh, associated with it. And we have to just get, get it out there that we can talk about it like anything else. Uh, it's not a sin. It's not a bit. It's just what has happened. And, and the more people that talk about it and the more we can discuss it um, is the most, to me, the most helpful. That there's nothing to be ashamed of this is something that, honestly, I've never met anyone who's, who hasn't <laughs> had some kind of a relation with suicide. Even young people who've lost pop singers and people, they're all connected to suicide in one way. So that would be my takeaway to end the silence, to end the stigma, and starting with programs like this. So I really appreciate this.
We want to thank Carla Fine and Michael Myers uh, for starting this conversation, and I think it's a start. And thank you, Mary Kay and Alina, for sharing your memories of your friend Jen and your struggles with losing her to suicide. At the end of their book, Touched by Suicide, Carla and Mike write to those who live on after a close friend or husband or child has ended her or his life. You're not alone. You never need to feel alone with your loss. You may even find some calm in the physicality of the book itself and think of it as a conduit and link to the other members of our global community. It is our hope that this book continues to speak to you throughout the years and that you gain comfort from our efforts long after you have put the book away. We are all family now, including those who are no longer with us. After her husband killed himself, Carla Fine received comfort and counseling at the Samaritans in New York City. For more information, the number for this safe place is 212-673-3000 or go to SamaritansNYC.org. The music for this BCR program was Igor Stravinsky's Aegon, performed by violinist Rolf Schulte.